A different future starts with you. That's why GoDaddy does more than help you find a name. You can create, sell, and get found online. So any small business could be a driving force to create change or build an empire. We know old ideas aren't cutting it anymore. So we're calling for a new generation of thinking. Your way of thinking. So whatever you have in mind that will help make a different future, find everything you need to get started at GoDaddy.com. Because the future isn't decided yet. It's up to us to make it happen. Start different at GoDaddy.com. COVID-19 patients need your help. If you've fully recovered from COVID-19 or unknowingly been exposed to it, you may have the antibodies that could help COVID-19 patients recover. Donate blood and receive testing for COVID-19 antibodies. Visit Vitalant.org today to schedule an appointment to donate blood. That's V-I-T-A-L-A-N-T dot org. Help save lives and schedule your appointment at Vitalant.org. You could help save lives. This is an ode to the glass noodle. You may be glass only in name, but our love for you is crystal clear in every Bibigo Korean dumpling. Your tantalizing texture tickles the taste buds, and while you are see-through, the world can't help but see you. The glass noodle, one of many obsessively crafted ingredients in every plump and juicy Korean dumpling from Bibigo. Go handcrafted. Go Bibigo. Authentic Korean dumplings now in the freezer aisle. It's the Innovation Podcast with Mark Reed Edwards and Garnett Harriman. Let's start the show. Hey, Garnett, how are you doing? Great. How are you doing today? It's finally starting to warm up here in, in New York. Yeah, and it's a beautiful morning here. We, we are going to continue our chat of Opportunity Zones, and we also have a guest today with us for this discussion. Garnett, you want to introduce him? What? What? That, this is supposed to be an internal conversation. What, what happened? Did somebody like drop by for a drop by for a cup of sugar? Or how, how does this work, I don't Mark? know, but uh, you invited him. Oh, okay. So maybe, uh, maybe I'm trying to pay back that other cup of sugar. <laughs> so you want to introduce him? Absolutely. We have Lane Jost with us today from PwC Boston and and, and other projects that he's done over the years, which I'll let him talk about. But Lane is a thought leader in socially responsible investing, impact investing, CSR, corporate social responsibility, and has been for many years. He's done it in a few different places, and I'll let him talk about the details. Hey, Lane, how are you today? I'm great. Thanks so much for having me on, Garnett and Mark. It's great to have you here. So as a fellow New Englander, I have to I have to complain about the lack of early spring. Um, unfortunately, the, the <laughs> groundhog, much like the Opportunity Zone uh, guidance, is vague at best right now. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, it's great to be here and, and uh, to speak with you all. It's good having you here. Great. So hopefully we can keep adding some clarity to the Opportunity Zone stuff and, and other varied and sundry, you know, topics around innovation and, and, and opportunities in general. Yeah. And, and Garnett, you know, you and I talked a couple of weeks ago about opportunity zones, and then we had Peter Stewart on the show to talk about opportunity zones. Yeah. What a smart guy. Yeah. And it was a, it was a really interesting discussion that we had because it was so good. We made it into two parts and here we are again, and opportunity zones are top of mind for me and for you. And Lane is here now. So why don't we mine that vein a bit more? Great. So one of the smartest things that Peter talked about, I thought, I don't know, 
what your review was, Mark, but I do you remember the section about 14 minutes in or something like that about the four buckets? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> sort of pretty, that was pretty smart, yeah. uh, pretty clever, and like a very, very clear distillation of how, how it works from a layman's standpoint. And um, I, on a parallel track, you know, have been working on a project with some partners in Los Angeles around the Los Angeles, uh, actually South Los Angeles, because there are multiple opportunity zones in, in LA Metro, but in the South Los Angeles um, opportunity zone. And that, that has actually taken on a lot of momentum since that last recording. We've um, raised a minimum of $10 million have been committed, and it, it looks like it's probably going to be significantly more than that over time from hmm. a group of investors out of Scottsdale, Los Angeles, and Vancouver. Wow, that's great. Yeah, that's pretty, that's pretty interesting. What's the incentive for someone in Vancouver to invest in something like this? Because it can't be a tax incentive. Yeah, right? well, I guess the incentive on one hand is is that a lot of people who are in are domiciled in Vancouver actually have dual citizenship, and um, you know, there are a lot of Canadian folks who, I guess, invade the border back and forth between um, Vancouver and yeah. Seattle. So it's actually Seattle money that originated in, in Vancouver. I, don't, I you know, I, I, right. I didn't really ask the any questions per se it they're they're part of a a, a syndicate um and not a crime syndicate hopefully but they're, they're part of a, a syndicate of what's known as rias rias are registered investment advisors so even if the ria is based in vancouver it could well probably is american money so you know they're representing family offices ultra high net worth individuals that kind of stuff and so the group of, of folks that i know are, are are not actually investing for themselves they're basically channeling you know multiple groups of family office money investment office money that's kind of a an efficient way of raising money right because you're not talking to one person at a time yeah so all of that is unfolding and at the same time you know we're exploring what it means to operationalize the capital because clearly the capital raising is not not the issue. Yeah. You know, there there have been billions of dollars in quote funds, and we'll get back to that why funds has to be in quote at some point in this conversation. But there have been lots and lots of money raised. It's a veritable veritable bonanza. That was a, a humorous part of our last podcast. Um uh, mm -hmm. and we 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 have a couple of macro theories for our group. Our group is called Fuel LA. And FUEL is a bit of an acronym. It stands for the Future of Urban Economy and Life uh, in L.A. Mm. or anywhere else. But this one happens to be called FUEL L.A. And um, one of our macro theses uh, is, is pretty simple. It's, it's that basically a lot of people who raise the money are going to have problems putting it to work. Forget about the, the vagueness of the policies, you know, statutes. And the you know the the legal requirements and all the constraints on how the money has to be invested in order to claim the the benefit that's hard enough. What we're seeing is a very very vocal and very well organized opposition sprouting up in some of the most attractive cities for opportunity zones, uh, Seattle and 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 San Francisco being among them. And this opposition is basically saying no to what they have termed development with displacement. Mm. 
So our group has taken the position right from the outset, even before raising money, that, that we want to find smart ways to be more community-centric, more, I don't know, uh, enabling of, of wealth distribution or redistribution, and to pursue projects that are more skewed towards development without displacement. And I think that's a great segue into one of the reasons why it's, it's going to be fun to have Lane chime in on this with his, you know, I think 15 years of expertise in what it means to be a socially responsible corporate citizen. Any thoughts on all that, Lane? Yeah, I do. I, mean, I think that's a nice, I think that's a nice frame. I think, you know, Garnett, from your, you know, early phase venture investing background, you know, it's interesting how you come to the Opportunity Zone tax credit because when I'll just say, and I'll just frame this up a little bit from my perspective, which is kind of corporate sustainability, corporate citizenship, but then also sort of what it means to do to kind of live and work in this space of sort of mission-driven capital. So whether it's, you know, corporates um, looking to, to drive greater sustainability within their supply chain, but really more increasingly, corporates, family offices, foundations, individuals, high net worth folks looking to do good with capital versus you know, doing less bad. And so just to frame this over the past, you know, really 20, 25 years in the U.S., you know, there's been lots of energy going from corporate sustainability or corporate responsibility reporting, which is having companies be more transparent about their social and environmental impacts, which now we have almost 80% of the S&P 500 reports on social and environmental indicators, and these are voluntary indicators. But we're in this interesting moment where, you know, companies have said, okay, you know, we want to do more good versus just doing less bad. And we think that goes right back to shareholder value. That's one heck of a statement. I think we all can agree, even those of us that might be sympathetic to that kind of aspiration. But then at the same time, you have you know people like Larry Fink, who for several years have written this you know annual letter talking about the role of the contemporary corporation has to provide value beyond shareholder value. This year, he, he used this this concept of purpose, which um, I won't get into right now because that is not my area of expertise. But the the point being is that you know corp, let's just say in in 2019. The corporation has to play a greater role in the overall wellness of the communities in which it operates. And of course, that can be unpacked in many different ways. And so along comes the White House's Opportunity Zone provision, which taken on the face of it for a moment, just based on the tax code, is a relatively remarkable unleashing of tax benefits to, to push capital into areas where you know, capital may or may not want to go. And I think, Garnett, you alluded to this a moment ago when you said, you know, private equity deals, you know, capital's there. What's interesting about the Opportunity Zone is a couple of things. One, can it find capital from people that seek so-called social capital returns? Meaning, can you invest in a, you know, in a housing or a real estate investment trust in the west side of Los Angeles? And can you find private equity range returns, but then also a measurable way that that money is maybe improving job opportunities in that zip code. That's maybe improving entrepreneurial capacity for entrepreneurs that would lack traditional forms of support, capital, whatnot. So I think, you know, the opposition just to 
is, is going to continue to be strong because there are skeptics in this space. And I think I'll make a couple more points and, and have you guys jump in just so I don't, don't belabor it. But I think this all goes back to really about sort of the Community Reinvestment Act, which was passed by Congress in 1979, which, you know, a lot of folks, I think, don't realize. I spent a little time in banking, so I can speak to it a little bit. So all large U.S. banks following 1979 have to prove, you know, a fairly robust or transparent way to the federal government, specifically the OCC, that they're providing the same levels of capital and credit to low to moderate income communities where their business footprint exists. So if you, if you have a bank that has a, you know, a, a major business footprint in major metropolitan areas like Boston, New York, and uh, Philadelphia, you have to prove that your branches um, live in, in zip codes that have that are low to moderate income zip codes, that your digital products are sort of sufficiently marketed to that segment of the population. So that in 1979, when the Community Reinvestment Act was created, which was really a, a, an effort by Congress to combat redlining, which was essentially banks dropping or shutting down their lending to low to moderate income citizens and borrowers and business. I'm going to come back to you, by the way, on the redlining thing, because there was yeah. something very, very uh, seminal. I, I saw recently that that helped condition some of the, the brand strategy and the positioning strategy for our, our investment group in L.A. So uh, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, no, I, and I think it's sorry, to, sorry for the sort of hopefully not too tedious history lesson, but I, I do think this is relevant from an opposition standpoint because sure. I think that the CRA, the community, the, the CRA created it really created an interesting ecosystem around cities, which was community development. Now, community development existed before the CRA, and this is really folks. This is community leaders who are being displaced by capital leaving cities, uh, quality of education leaving cities, and these were folks that were taking their neighborhoods back and. When the CRA was passed, it, it provided a pretty strong regulatory mechanism that pushed capital back into these spaces via compliance. So you have the community development folks that are you know, really focused on affordable housing, financial education, entrepreneurship, specifically in their zip codes. And then along comes this opportunity zone credit. So you're going to have some some skepticism because these folks have been basically combating the last half of the 20th century flight, and now they're combating gentrification. And so this is the community that doesn't benefit with gentrification. And now you've got a, a pretty big tax credit that's providing opportunity for significant capital flows to drive up, potentially bri drive up property value. And so there's definitely going to be some local level skepticism. But the opportunity, I think, to stem that from you know giving investors what they want and then from giving the community what they want is some kind of a, a sort of a impact investing or a guardrail, if you like, expression on how this how these investments can be set up, how they can be operationalized, to use your word, Garnett, and then how can they how can they be measured? And there's there's a lot of energy now from the so-called impact investing world, which is you know foundations. Um, I hesitate to say think tanks, but there's a number of I think impact investing leaders in the U.S. who have who've developed a white paper around kind of reporting framework, like what are, you know, if you're an investor in Opportunity Zone and if you look at the spirit of the, the law, you know, how are you measuring measuring entrepreneurial investing? You know, I think there's a lot of folks from the Small Business Foundation, entrepreneurial support ecosystem world who are 
excited and are optimistic because if you look at the traditional mechanisms of the Community Reinvestment Act, and we're talking about philanthropy, we're talking about new market tax credit financing, so money that supports you know, tax credits for donors that's mainly used to, to build affordable housing projects. What's exciting about this, uh, the Opportunity Zone provision, is it, it could be all kinds of different kinds of businesses. There's a little less restriction, and we're, we're, there's still some questions about what restrictions are out there. But so for people... And I'm going to give, yeah. you, I'm going to give you some like, like, like worm's eye view on that, the, the enterprise investing versus the real estate investing later in this conversation. So I think that's on, 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 the, on the less skeptical side, I think a lot of it is around how can the, the capital collaborate with decision makers who understand that the sort of the dynamics of social capital. So, so the community development people that have worked in neighborhoods who really understand you know, who the local leaders are, whether it's nonprofit, public sector, or small business leaders, who can really identify the funding gaps and can help inform the right kind of deal flow. I think that's really critical. And if that's an overly vague comment, we can talk about it some more. I think from the more impact or mission-driven community development world, there are people uh, and leaders who are very uh, mission-driven, who are measuring outcomes, who are intrigued by working with the private capital world. Yep. So you kind of have this, this synergy. But I think the question right now, in addition to the regs, um, is like corporate sustainability, like impact investing, like social responsible investing, can you actually do this in a way that drives traditional value, but also actually has measurable, credible social return? And I'd say that's a big question mark. I find something really interesting here. On this podcast, we talk about innovation and we're usually talking about the what, you know, what are you doing to innovate? And here it seems like we're talking about the how, how are you doing something? Or the why. It's, or or the, yeah, or the why. Yeah. It, it's, the what is almost like something that's kind of assumed or yeah. will come later. And here it's about a technique or, or a motivation that is, that is driving this innovation. It's really fascinating. If you've recovered from COVID-19 or unknowingly been exposed to it, you may have antibodies that could help COVID-19 patients donate blood and receive testing for COVID-19 antibodies. Visit Vitalit.org today. I heard a rumor recently, Mark, and I, I don't know if you can help me validate this in, uh, uh, on air, but I, I heard that the, the Reed Edwards four-acre compound is actually an opportunity zone. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. But then it's again, full previously... Of full of opportunity. <laughs> pre previously, I had also heard, heard that you were, uh, uh, you know, sort of libertarian and you had declared your compound a sovereign state. A free, the free state of Reed Edwards. Yeah, that's it. Well, I've been in, I've been in your neighborhood in New York, so I know it's very similar down there too. Yeah, except I'm not on four acres. <laughs> Nor am I, just for the record. Okay. So let let let's go back a couple of things that that first just just quick background on 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 Lane to to help frame where where that expansive perspective comes from. Lane, you, so you, you, you have been a pretty high-level consultant at PwC, but you've also become an expert on another vehicle altogether that's sort of pushing into the avant-garde of, of impact, and that is foundations. You, you were at a bank foundation, right? Which, which bank were you at? Santander Bank, which is uh, 
Boston Bank uh, in the northeast of the U.S. Got it. Got it. Um, and, you know, you're, you're kind of uniquely situated to comment on the on novel in investment structures, right? Because you've touched early stage, you've touched, I don't know what to call that Rhode Island group, I guess, like co- community in, investing type funds or, or, or local investing type funds. And you've touched impact funds, right? Ind- indirectly through, uh, or directly yeah. through Give Quick. So, you know, you've seen a few different iterations of novel investment structures. So I think I've shared a little bit about DAFs with Mark previously, but maybe maybe just riff on the sort of provenance. Uh, I, I feel like DAFs and Opportunity Zone funds are very much on a spectrum, even though they were, you know, as policy or legislations, you know, unrelated. I feel that they exist on a spectrum. Yeah. What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I agree. I think the spectrum. I mean, if, if we just want to talk, tell, tell everyone, tell everyone what a donor advised fund is first. Yeah, the simplest way to think about a donor advised fund is essentially an individual who seeks charitable tax deduction. So, in, in the U.S., you know, in the IRS regulations, a, a charitable tax deduction is mainly considered if you're giving money to a five hundred one c three U.S. public charity that it. It, you know, it basically assumes that that money is doing mission-driven or public interest work that's not being done in the public sector. And so the, the federal government provides tax deduction for the donor because to create an incentive for that institution, which is a 501c3 public charity, to use that money to drive public good. So it, it, it runs the gamut, as, as many, I'm sure as many listeners are very familiar with uh, what a 501c3 nonprofit is. A donor advised fund provides essentially an ability for a donor to pool that money in a fund, a donor advised fund, commonly known as a DAF, and get immediate tax exempt benefits without that money then having to be passed on directly to an operating 501c3 nonprofit. Well, well, just to be clear, it has to be passed on, but there's no there's no real clear timeline of when it has to be passed on. That's right, uh, and thanks for that. So, you know, traditionally in the simply the giving the, the nonprofit giving world, um, you know, foundations traditionally have held this sort of aggregation role where donors can you know give a million dollars, and that foundation through its operating board can decide how to make, you know, the investments or the charitable investments. The beauty of the DAF is is we get into this world where philanthropy is becoming really more and more democratic based on better technology, better information to learn about different impact models. Donors can create a DAF and it can be done through, you know, a third party like a financial advisor. And they can put that money into the donor advised fund and the money can sit there and they can for that tax year, they can get the benefit, but then they can decide how to meet out those dollars to charities as they see fit. Now, there's, you know, obviously that there has to be a, a board that sits on that money, and the donor has can advise how that money gets spent. They technically don't have 100% authority of how that money gets spent, but obviously there's there's an ability for that money to go to end nonprofits that they would like. So it's the DAF has become has really gone up in popularity because I think, you know, increasingly we're seeing younger, you know, tech founders and other folks that are getting wealthier, faster, wanting their hands on their money more directly versus, you know, maybe just giving a million dollars to a a significant nonprofit that they have a affinity for or a foundation that they have a relationship with. So I think the DAF has provided, you know, as a, as a very tax friendly individual, almost democratic impact investing, if I can use that term, 
for you know folks that maybe want to play uh, you know want to reap the benefit of, on the tax side uh, immediately but then want to take a more sort of uh, portfolio approach to grant making more like a you know more like a private equity type investor yeah that's are cool i mean you know to put it into like real layman's terms i mean you give money and you you set aside money in a DAF and get a 100% tax deduction immediately in that tax year. And then you have X number of years. And, you know, I've heard people like sitting on the money for three and five years at a time and stuff like this. And then the other thing is you can actually have a say. I, I don't know that you have a 100% say, but you have a say in appointing or, or selecting the people or the organization that would actually allocate the money. So when I first heard of a DAF, I had this image of a, a cartoon, and I don't remember. It might have been like one of the early Mickey Mouse cartoons where you put a dollar on a string and you put the dollar into like a vending machine. And then when the object comes out of the vending machine, you yank the dollar back. <laughs> it's like, and it's not, not exactly what's happening, but it feels like you're, you're giving away the money and getting the tax benefit and then sitting on the money. At times, if you're if you're not like totally straightforward with you know following through, you know God knows there have been people who have played fast and loose with the DAF stuff. But so anyway, it 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 feels like that's on a spectrum with some of this opportunity zone regulations, and because it preceded it, and then it it shaped people's thinking, including that think tank who sort of came up with the legislation and pushed it first under Obama, and then had it got it signed under Trump. But I want to go back to something that Lane mentioned earlier, which is redlining. Can you just tell people what redlining is, who are not like civics historians and, you know, knowledgeable about that sort of stuff? Because it's easy to overlook. I think a lot of middle class folk and upper middle class folk of any color, you know, white or otherwise, don't really know what redlining is. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, redlining is, is exactly what it sounds like. Major American banks really during the middle of the 20th century, basically literally created maps based on metropolitan areas that they operated in and basically drew lines of demarcation on where they were going to lend money and where they were not going to lend money to, you know, essentially based on the you know demographics of the neighborhood. And just to be very direct, I mean, based on mainly you know, African-American populations in U.S. cities with a lot of white suburban flight happening as, as neighborhoods started to change and just said, listen, we're essentially pulling out of these zip codes because it's no longer in our business interest. And that created essentially like very, very strong racial divides, if, I, if I'm understanding what you're suggesting, right? I mean, that, that, that's the reality of what happened. If the capital is following the white flight or, or vice versa, because it's not really clear which, which was the driver to me, it's sort of a, a vicious cycle in some ways, right? So if the capital follows the white flight and leaves a, a capital vacuum in the urban areas where there's a, a lot of black folk, a lot of African-Americans, then certain things happen, right? Like, like very significant racial divides along this urban, suburban or urban, ex-urban sort of divide. That's one thing. And then, you know, without the capital, the level of community development and economic development that's possible obviously starts to take a nosedive. And then over decades, you know, you start to have kind of what you have today, which is, you know, pockets of underserved, underdevelopment areas that are nestled within larger, robust, economically productive, you know, megalopolises in some cases, like, like LA and New York. San Francisco and Seattle. 
And so I think that's one of the things that uh, that the opportunity zone is really trying to is trying to smooth out that division, that lumpiness, right, between certain areas and other areas. So I I was mentioning earlier that I had seen this exhibit, a group known as Enterprise Community Partners, a very large, technically a nonprofit. That's right. And what they do is is lend money. They have a few different financial instruments, but they lend money into pretty much every affordable housing project around the country. They're based in D.C. They're highly funded and they're very, very savvy. And, you know, there's a lot of um, crossover between some of their financial folks and basically Wall Street. So they get they get folks who are adept at, um, you know, creating novel financial structures, tax credits, you know, bonds, securitizations, that kind of. And, and they use that sophistication, financial sophistication, to create instruments that they that uh, provide additional incentive to investors who are willing to invest in affordable housing. So that's Enterprise Community Partners. They, they have a traveling exhibit that's like going to you know, hundreds of places around the country that's called Undesign the Red Line. <laughs> and and it's, it's a pretty cool thing. It's, a, it's an interactive event and a series of videos and infographics and immersive experiences and all this stuff that basically shows the history of what redlining has done to, you know, urban areas around the country. And, you know, I was following a thread when I was thinking about the sort of branding and positioning for Fuel LA on one, on the one side, I was, you know, researching some of the, the pushback and the protests that Lane was referring to in, in cities like Seattle and, and San Francisco and, and thinking, gee, let's be clever and go to the, where the white space is. And, and then I saw this red line exhibit and I'm like, holy smoke, there's something very substantial about this whole thing. And, and it, it's not just, a, it's not a nice to have this positioning that I was evolving, but the positioning is absolutely required because of this history, this fifth, fifth you know, 1930 to now, it's about an 80 or 90 year history of structural discrimination. And, and the impact of that. So that's a really cool exhibit. And, and maybe in the program notes, we'll put the website up for und, Undesign the Red Line. I don't know if either one of you guys, uh, Mark or Lane, have, have come across this. Yeah, no, I have. And so, and so enterprises, you know, I was, was talking about community development. Enterprise is a, is a major, you know, major player in, in the community development world, whether it's financial you know, instruments or you know, more direct philanthropy. or. But I think Garnett just... Um, the red line thing bears mention again, just in the context of opportunity zones, because, yeah, I mean, we're talking about, I mean, just to, just a pan out for a moment, if I, if I may, we're really talking about this battle between, you know, private capital and governmental oversight in some ways. So, you know, in the 30s, I mean, red line goes back to the 20s or 30s. I think the term wasn't termed maybe until the 60s or 70s, probably by some academic who looked at it. But literally, there, there are maps out there and folks can. Yeah, they're in the exhibit. I was absolutely shocked. Yeah, I mean, it's actually, it's pretty shy. I mean, it, it really is. I'm so glad that there was an exhibit about it because we're not talking about like something that kind of banks quietly did to just, you know. Oh, no. Improve their risk pool. Like th- this was a strategy. Yeah. Th- this was a, a, a direct business strategy where the private sector said, you know, we're going to do what banks do best, which is lend to, you know, the, what we think are the most credit worthy uh, populations. Like, and so I mean, communities like, as we all know, and this is not a podcast on debt and finance, but you know, if you can't finance a payroll for a grocery store in a neighborhood, there, there's going to be deep long-term problems. And um, so to go back to the opportunity zones, yeah, I mean, I think 
in some ways, you know, the opportunity zone has to be considered. The, the skeptics have to be properly respected because uh, we're now we're talking about more capital going filling into these zones. And um, you know, how do we really how do we set the funds up? How do we figure out strategies? And how do we you know how do we learn from some of the systemic failures? And we are talking about an explicit role, a regulatory role here. So it's, you know, Garnett, you can speak to this and Mark, you all can speak to this probably better than I can, but, you know, how do investors feel about, you know, regulatory headwinds and, and political challenges? And then, of course, I'll just, I'll mention one other name right now who's very loud in the contemporary moment, who's written this book, Winners Take All, Anon Giradadas. I apologize if I'm mispronouncing his name. He's a, he's a writer who, who, who's really, really been vocal about philanthropy being basically a dodge for systemic problems like you know unfair tax systems and whatnot. So you, you definitely have a, a, a growing chorus, certainly led by the liberal wing of the Democratic Party, too, in Washington. So the skepticism is out there. I think it's about it's really just about the right engineering and operational thinking. And yeah, a lot of it is good stakeholder engagement. All right. Next time, we continue our chat about Opportunity Zones with Lane Jost. In the weeks ahead, we'll be talking with Daniel Ray about the innovation he heads up at Ultimate Guitar, Mark Gallagher about innovation in the world of F1, Francesca Gino of Harvard Business School about how rebels can help a company embrace innovation. And we're also planning discussions with experts in elder tech and esports. So stay with us. Thanks for joining Garnett and Mark on the Innovation Podcast. Visit innovationpodcast.co to subscribe and listen to other episodes.